Good evening. Welcome to class tonight. I appreciate your being here, particularly since I am only here electronically. I want to thank you for your patience in this. Laura and I and 40 of our new best friends are touring Israel. But we didn't want to have a hiccup or a stop in the series because this has gone so well. Your participation and engagement has been so good. We wanted to charge on and keep moving through our series on the parables of Jesus. This new angle that we're going to take, or this new little series, is going to continue with the parables, but we're going to explore some additional parables of Jesus. If you remember, in our first series called Long Story Short, we basically looked at some of the foundational ideas, ideas of Jesus' teaching. You know, my contention is that we need to be careful and let Jesus say everything he wants to say. Sometimes we focus in on one of the truths and push some of the others to the background, and that keeps us from understanding what Jesus taught the way he wanted it to be understood. The parables are a great way to study that because they give us the breadth of Jesus' teaching. Well, in the first series, we organized it with some of the foundational teachings. I don't know if you were impressed with this or not, but I was when I first started looking at the parables years ago, is Jesus has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. We talked about the kingdom of God being the rule of God. It's Jesus is bringing an invasion, if you will, into the world run by Satan, and now it's going to be God reclaiming his creation one person at a time. He begins to rule in one human heart after another. And so the kingdom of God is that place where God rules. We looked at the judgment parables, a surprising number of them. And my contention to you, if you remember, was that really in the kingdom way of living, I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount for pray for your enemies, you know, don't take vengeance on others. That morality is really... Uh, incomprehensible without the idea of justice being done. And the judgment parables are really about the assurance that God will indeed do justice. He will set things right, that evil and sin will indeed be judged. We talked about salvation. Jesus has salvation parables. And if you remember, he turned that on us. He said, there is good and there is evil in the world. After all, there will be judgment. But he said, I want you to think about all these people as lost and found. Are some of them sinners? Of course they are. So were we. He said, but I'd like you to think about them as very valuable creatures of God that I want to find and bring home. What a way to open our eyes to evangelism. So we looked in the first series at some of those really foundational ideas that we have to understand to understand the teaching of Jesus. In this series called Uncommon Sense, we'd really like to focus in on a whole other suite of parables where Jesus begins to talk about everyday life, everyday living. There's a great quote from one of the theologians we've been looking at a little in this series, James Montgomery Boyce. Let me read this to you. He said, some sections of the Bible give us grand theology. Some move us to grateful responses to God. The parables ask us if there has been any real difference in our lives. I love that. That's exactly right. The parables of Jesus confront us, and the ones we're going to look at over the next few weeks basically confront us with the question of, this is what life in the kingdom looks like and calls us to live it out. So in this lesson, I want to start talking about some really foundational ideas that are going to drive a lot of kingdom behavior. 
In other words, living under the rule of God in my life, when I have surrendered and said, not my will but thine, and I begin to follow Jesus Christ and call that kingdom living, in other words, living under the rule of God, following Jesus Christ, being formed into his image slowly by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. That kind of kingdom living is built on, at the beginning, love and forgiveness. In fact, take you to the Lord's Prayer. I want to emphasize how important this idea of love and forgiveness is, particularly forgiveness. You remember the Lord's Prayer? This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's kingdom language, isn't it? God, through Jesus Christ, has come to take back, to redeem, if you will, what belongs to him. He said, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I bolded this part on your slide. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's strong language. But it emphasizes how crucially important forgiveness is in living the kingdom life. So I'd like to look at two parables of Jesus. There are more, but I've chosen these two because I think they really bring out a couple of different angles on this idea of living a forgiving life. So let's just jump into these. I want to start with what's called the parable of the two debtors. The way these two parables work is you have a context, a setting. Jesus is, is dealing with an actual situation and in response to that situation, he tells a parable or a story. So here's how it sets up. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought a jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on his feet. Well, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was really a prophet, if he was really a holy man, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. In other words, she's making him unclean by touching him. Well, first, imagine this setting. You have to understand how this worked in ancient times, is they didn't have tables and chairs. They didn't sit at a dining room table, despite the medieval painting that I put up there for you. They reclined to eat. And so there was a small table or an area at the beginning, and everyone would lie down and, you know, up on one, one arm, and your feet would be out behind you. Why? Because your feet are ugly, they're dirty. Uh, you walk around everywhere in sandals. So they were behind you, and you would just be looking around at everyone else reclining, a pillow perhaps under your arm, and you would just be eating out front. So she's kind of on the outside, back by the wall, by his feet. And Simon the Pharisee, whose house he's at, sees this. So I want you to see the contrast. These parables are brilliant in the way they deal with contrast. Here you have the upright, holy Pharisee, and you have the lowly, outcast, sinful woman. Now, let me make this point. The Pharisee really is better in conduct and sins less than this woman. It's not an argument about she's not really a sinner and he's not really 
following the law of Moses. That's not what Jesus is saying. She really is a sinner, and he really doesn't sin as much as she does. So watch what happens. He's got this contrast. So then he begins to wonder. The Pharisee begins to wonder. He says, wow, if only he knew. So Jesus turns to him and he says this, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Two men owed money to a certain money lender, certain loan shark. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarius is maybe like a day's wages. So he owes him a lot of money. He owes him more than a year's salary. And the other owed him 50, maybe a little more than a month's salary. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debt of both. No payment plan. He just said, written off. You owe me nothing. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, and he said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, I want you to just let this soak in for a second. This is so brilliant. Jesus is not just the Son of God. Jesus is brilliant. So he sees what he's thinking, and he tells him this simple story in about three sentences with the obvious thing, and that is, which one is likely to love him more? Well, the one that owed him the most money. So watch how Jesus applies it. Then he turned toward the woman, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course, he knows that Simon saw this woman. I came into your house. You didn't do the respectful things for me. He said, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith, your trust has saved you. Go in peace. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Notice how things get recast. The upright Pharisee, the sinful woman. Now, in just a moment's time, Jesus has turned it upside down. He doesn't say, oh, wait a minute. She's really not sinful. No, she really was. But what is she doing? She's repentant. She's sorrowful for her sins. She's hopeless. She's kissing his feet, hoping he will show her how to be right with God, how to escape this burden of sin. She knows that she's an outcast. She knows she does things that she should not do. And Jesus says this brokenheartedness, this repentance has shifted it. He said, Simon, you don't have any of that because you don't think you need it. She knows she needs it, and so she is brokenhearted and repentant. Which one of those two is likely to walk out of that room going a different path? The woman. Simon doesn't think he needs to go a different path. And that's what Jesus is so brilliantly bringing forward. Repentance is the key to being reconciled to God. We are saved by grace through faith. Don't misunderstand me. But what is Jesus looking for? He's looking for that repentant heart. What do I mean when I say repentant? Someone who wants to change direction. There's a sorrow for who I have been, what I have done, and a desire to be clean, a desire to change path. And you see that so poignantly in this woman in the story. 
And that repentance is the key to being reconciled with God. And Jesus basically manages to recast this parable and turn things upside down. Well, let's apply this for just a minute because I want to talk about this. There's a really important principle in living our daily lives out of this. Our state of being forgiven allows us to love others regardless of whether or not they deserve it. We respond with love out of our deep experience of forgiveness. Think about what's happening here. This phrase is haunting to me. He says, Simon, those who have been forgiven little, love little. Now, Simon may have had a little or a lot to be forgiven for, but either way, he stood under the condemnation of sin, as we all do. Some of us are just better sinners than others, but we all stand in need of reconciliation with God. It's this idea of forgiveness and love tied together. Those who are forgiven little, love little. So when it comes to living our lives and loving people, here's how most of the time we try to do it. We say, look, Jesus tells me I'm supposed to love other people, so I'm going to try real hard. And you know the problem with that? People are not lovable. If you don't believe me, get out on Hefner Parkway at 5 o'clock. There are no lovable people there. You understand what I'm saying is we try and try because I'm supposed to love you and you grit your teeth and I, I love you. Yes, I really do. Trying harder to love people is not the gospel way of doing it. We cannot do that on our own. So what is the secret? The secret, Jesus said, is the awareness of our own sin. Because without being aware of our sin, see, Simon said, I don't have much sin. So how much do you suppose he was repentant? How much did God's forgiveness mean to him? Not very much. It's in that awareness of our own sin. I'm not talking about a guilt trip here. I'm not saying all of you sitting there should start numbering your sins and beating yourself up about it and reliving your past. That's not my point. My point is simply this. Without a, an awareness of the weight of who we were, we really don't have any idea of the gift that we have been given. Jesus is going to connect these two things. He's going to say to love the way you need to love in the kingdom, all these messy, imperfect people out there, you're going to have to have a deep sense of how much you've been forgiven, how free that you are. So this first parable really makes that connection. Let me jump into a second one that's going to look at this from just a slightly different angle. So remember, the first one talks about he has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus is going to tie the loving behavior that he's going to call us to, not to that individual's worth, like, oh, they're really a good person deep down underneath. Well, if that's the truth, you're going to have to dig pretty far for some of the people I know, right? The point is not, oh, we love you because, well, you're valuable to God. That's quite true, but even so, I tend to lack a lot of patience with that unless I realize the debt that I've been forgiven. So look at this story. This story is going to give us a little insight into the nature of God. Again, it begins with an incident and then Jesus telling a story. The incident is this. Peter, one of Jesus' followers, came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 
times seven, or 77 times. The translation can go either way, but we'll use the NIV. He said not seven times, but 77 times. Well, two thoughts here. First, I want to connect this to the Old Testament in just a second. But I want to tell you what, what uh, Peter's doing. When he asks this question, Peter's actually kind of puffing himself up because you see the rabbis of the time, there were two big rabbinic schools. Think of two different schools of theology. They were intently trying to understand the Old Testament and what God wanted from them. And some of the rabbis said, if your brother sins against you, does you wrong, you have to forgive him three times. And then... He's dead to you. Other rabbis said, no, no, you must forgive him seven times. Well, that was considered by far the more strict school of the Pharisees. It was harder to live up to, to forgive them seven times that they've done something to you. So Peter thinks he's being, you know, one of the good guys. He said, Lord, how many times do you think? I'd say, what, seven? Don't you think seven, Jesus? Yeah, you and me, we're spiritual giants here. And Jesus turns it upside down. He says, Peter, how about 77? Well, that just means limitless. And you can just see Peter's mouth drop like, that's not the answer that I was expecting. Jesus is actually making a very clever little play here. I want to take you back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, you may not remember this story. It's an obscure little character, but it's really quite interesting in the beginning chapters of Genesis, you begin to see the genealogies, and then it talks to you about who married whom and what kids they had. And this is after the fall in the Garden of Eden, and mankind is spreading out into the world and not necessarily following God by any means. Well, there was a guy named Lamech. He's not particularly important in a big way, but I want to read you this. Lamech was a proud guy. And listen to this. Cain, who, remember, killed his brother Abel, they were expelled from the garden, and now these are the descendants. He, Lamech says this, and he bragged to his wives. Ada and Zillah, his wives' names, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for offending me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times. So what's Lamech saying? This is kind of the pinnacle of dog-eat-dog, eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth. This is just that world of vengeance. This is Hatfields and McCoy kind of stuff here. Lamech is saying, oh, if old Cain, if he was avenged seven times, I'll be avenged 77 times. I'll carry out my vengeance even more. So what you see in Lamech, Lamech represents fallen man, sinful people, we're vengeful. We hold grudges. We want to get back at people that do something to us. He said 77 times. In other words, he is limitless vengeance. He is mankind always seeking vengeance. And Jesus in saying, how many times will you forgive? How about 77? See how he just turned it upside down. He contrasts the limitless forgiveness of God with the limitless vengeance of man. It's a brilliant connection. And so he circumvents what Peter's saying. And he kind of knocks Peter's little spiritually uh, holier-than-thou legs out from under him. And he says, God's idea of forgiveness is not that legalistic. It's actually limitless. 77 times is how many times that you should forgive. There, this idea of forgiveness is going to run all through the Bible. 
You're going to see it. I'm going to mention some stories, and if you don't know them, that's okay. But for those of you that have spent more time and uh, read the Old Testament more, you remember Jacob and Esau? So Isaac's two sons, twin sons. Esau's the older. Jacob's the younger. Jacob tricks his brother out of his birthright. Brother says, dude, when dad dies, you die. And so there's this bad blood, but the story comes full circle, give you the short version, of forgiveness and reconciliation. You see it happening of of God hinting of how he's going to overcome man's desires for vengeance. Remember then, Jacob, the same guy, has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph's his favorite. He spoiled that kid. Brothers get angry out one time, and they said, throw him in a well, sell him to slaves, and we'll go back and tell dad that he died. He's a little brat anyway. He's just too full of himself. Then the story comes around from the vengeance to Joseph ends up in Egypt. Joseph ends up number two guy in Egypt. Brothers end up starving in Israel and make their way to Egypt looking for relief from a drought and a famine. And oh my goodness, there's Joseph. Never thought we'd see you here. And Joseph said, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. This is Genesis 50 now. We whipped all the way through Genesis. He said, God meant this for good. And he hugs them and he cries and he's reconciled to his brothers and he forgives them. And so you see, even in the Old Testament, you see this idea of God working to overcome our desire for vengeance to bring about forgiveness. Scene one, after it's set up, he answers Peter, think about what's happening, three times or seven times? No, 77 times. And so then he tells this story Because what he just said is like, wait, why? That makes no sense to me. Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story, Peter. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Now notice, again, it all gets back to kingdom language. Remember, Matthew likes to say kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. But in the kingdom life, the following Jesus kind of life, this is kind of what it's like. I want to teach you about this whole forgiveness thing, Peter. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. He wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Servants owed him money. He began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents, ridiculous amount of money. Herod, King Herod, remember when Jesus was born, you had evil King Herod, Herod the Great, he called himself, one of the richest men in the world. His annual income was 900 talents one of the richest guys in the world. He said, oh, this guy owes him 10,000 talents. Okay, back to our text. So ridiculous amount of money. And what he wasn't able to pay, so the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and everything he had be sold. So they were going to become slaves. He's just going to take whatever he could get for selling them into slavery to repay the debt. Oh, the servant fell on his knees before the king. He said, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. Give me more time. Let me pay this out over time. And the servant's master had mercy on him, took pity on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. He didn't put up a payment plan. He canceled the debt. You walk out of there scot-free from a debt you could never repay. The disciples are listening to this. They go, oh, man, I can kind of feel that. Maybe you could feel that, too. It's like winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstake or something. Somebody comes to your house and says, you just won you know, $10 million for life. And somebody else came and said, oh, there's been a mistake and you don't even owe anything on your mortgage. And yeah, I mean, it's just crazy, you know, just unbelievable good fortune, unbelievable mercy. 
It's sort of like, in modern day terms, there was a margin call. By the way, this was not unusual for high-level servants to borrow money from their master and go invest it. So try to make some money on their own and give it back. Well, this guy had made some bad investments, margin call, can't pay, you're going to jail. So this, this made sense to them, but the numbers were extravagant and no one had ever forgiven a debt. So he canceled the debt and he let him go. He says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, somebody a little lower, that he'd loaned some of that money out to. He's got a little business going on the side, who owed him 100 denarii. Well, we just talked about that. That's 100 days wages, so three months wages. I mean, he'll probably pay that back over a period of time. 10,000 talents? No. This? Yeah. He grabbed him by the throat and began to choke him. You better pay me what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, the exact same words, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Give me time, I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, how does this, first of all, how does this make you feel? How does this make you feel at this point in time? Well, just like Peter and everybody else, we're angry, aren't we? I just want to pause and I want you to think about that for a minute. Why are you angry about this? There's a sense of not rightness about this, isn't there? This is unjust. It's just unjust for this guy to have gotten his forgiveness and then turn around and for a trivial thing he won't forgive. It arouses anger in us. It's the kind of anger you see in the world when you see helpless children or marginalized people just being abused because somebody can. It makes us angry. It's wired into us. This is off the subject, but it's a perfect time to explain this. When the Bible talks about the wrath of God, the anger of God, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about God got mad and lost his head. He just lost his cool got angry, did something he wished he hadn't done. That's not what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is that feeling you feel right now as you think about this situation. It's that righteous indignation. It's that anger at the not rightness, the injustice of that situation. And so Jesus brilliantly, again, in just a few sentences, evokes that feeling in us, that not rightness. He said, now you're feeling a little like God feels when he looks at sin of all kinds. So, scene three. Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Well, then the master called that first servant in, and he said, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant like I had on you? In anger. His master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Very interesting parable, brilliantly crafted. By the way, you notice we just picked up the theme of justice, or in this case, injustice, sin, and the idea of judgment. God's judgment. We just tap back. It's all interrelated. We just tap back into the judgment parables because there's no way to make this right without judge. Might makes right. 
if there is no justice. So you tap into the idea of justice. I could have used this parable as a judgment parable. But basically you see the idea of judgment. But what Jesus is trying to get to is this idea of forgiveness and the rightness of it. And again, you see the recognition of what we have been. It's tied to what we've been forgiven, isn't it? Great quote, by the way, by Richard Hayes. Let's talk about living this out. You see these two parables. You're starting to draw the obvious conclusions. But I want to connect what Jesus is saying because just trying really hard to live the kingdom life, trying really hard to act good enough to live up to Jesus is not the Christian life. It's a renewal of the heart. And part of that is understanding what Jesus is saying about how he wants you to look at this situation. Richard Hayes says this, forgiveness is the hallmark of the community's life. When he says community, he means the community of believers who follow Christ. We call that the church, or at least within the church are those that follow Jesus Christ. He says, no one should be quick to judge others for all are radically dependent upon the mercy of God. Notice he's not saying there's no discerning going on. There's no calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. He's just saying we all are going to take a step back and not be quick to judge because we have all radically dependent on the mercy of God. That's a brilliant statement about life in the kingdom that comes directly out of this parable. So the lesson... Again, our state of being forgiven allows us to show mercy to others regardless of whether or not they deserve it. We extend mercy as we've received mercy. The first parable looked at this from the idea of love and forgiveness. He who is forgiven little loves little. This one turns it a little bit and looks at the idea of mercy and forgiveness. In other words, our experience of being forgiven in this parable allows us to actually love. When we realize the debt that has been paid for us, we can love someone as imperfect as they are because it doesn't depend on them deserving it. That's the key in the kingdom. It's not about them deserving it. Here, this says we can show mercy. We can forgive because we recognize the depth of our forgiveness. So you see, Jesus is going to tie this kingdom living, this treating other people in this way, not to whether or not they deserve it, but based on the fact of what I have received from God. So our horizontal relationships are dependent on our vertical treatment by God. Any self-help, any works-based salvation, any conduct, any morality in the world, you sever that, that relationship, and now all of a sudden we have to relate to each other on what basis? Well, we typically say, if you deserve it, I love you. If you don't deserve it, I don't. That's called love your friends, hate your enemies. Or I love you and I'll give you mercy if you'll make it right, if you'll pay me back everything, or if you'll do penance. We'll talk about that in a second. Once you sever that relationship, you can't live a kingdom life. The best you can do is just try to be a good person. Jesus said the basis for living the kingdom life is that appreciation of what God has done for me. There's a story back in 2006, you may remember this, a guy named Charles Roberts. This happened to an Amish community, and I, I still remember this story. You probably do too, but this man basically uh, went into an Amish schoolhouse. He killed five school children, he injured five more, and then he killed himself. And the whole country was shocked. 
at how the Amish community responded to that. Of course, they grieved. They were heartbroken. But they went to his funeral. They comforted his family. They basically demonstrated forgiveness, not because he deserved it, maybe not because his family deserved it. They were able to act that way. And I admit, that's a, we call that an extreme case. God wouldn't, but that's, boy, that's really something. Well, I'm not, you and I aren't usually called upon to give that kind of forgiveness. Maybe you have been, but in our daily lives, we're not called upon to that level. But when they did respond, what was the answer? The answer was, I can respond this way to him because this is how God has dealt with me. You take that out, there's no way that you can respond in that way. So, let me ask a couple of questions. <clears throat> because at this point, since you're not able to text in questions in this lesson, there are usually two questions that people ask, and they have really important implications. The first one is this. Does forgiving mean forgetting? Does forgiving mean forgetting? Let me tell you a parable. Suppose you had a dog named, oh, say Daisy. Well, I do, actually. Suppose you had a dog named Daisy. Suppose your dog uh, was a devil dog. Well, and that's true, too. This isn't a parable. This is true. So I have this dog named Daisy. She's kind of a devil dog. And what I mean by that is she just has her own idea of right and wrong and is completely unwilling to listen to me try to tell her that that's not the case. So let's say at night, if we leave Daisy unbound, if you will, if we let her have the run of the house. She likes to leave little presents. Any of you guys have a dog that just loves you enough? They like to leave you little presents around the house. Well, there's a sense in which I forgive Daisy for that. She's a dog. She's probably, at this point in her life, not going to be trained differently. But you know what? We do actually put her in a room and confine her at night. My point is this, forgiveness and forgetting are not the same thing. Now, taking vengeance is not forgiving. Holding a grudge is not forgiving. But to forgive and say, it's like it never happened, I'll just pretend you never did that, that's called foolishness. I mean, you just need to realize that this is obviously something this person struggles with. Maybe they struggle with anger. Maybe they struggle with honesty. Maybe they struggle with other things. I might forgive them, and then the loving thing to do is help them get over that, not ignore it. So forgiving doesn't mean forgetting, but please don't go to the other extreme and say, I can do vengeance. I can, you know, part ways. That's not forgiving. So forgiveness means I'll, I take no vengeance on this. I hold nothing against you. Your debt has been paid with me. But it doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean being foolish. Especially, and I don't want to dip into politics, but I know this question is going to come up. When you move from the personal level to the national level, remember we talked in our Politically Incorrect series, the Bible has different standards for individuals than it does for nations. So I'm just preempting a couple of questions there. Individuals are called to forgive. Nations are called to punish evil and reward good. There are different standards there. So I don't want us to confuse and talk about forgiveness, say, well, our government should do this or that government should do that and confound the idea of what we as individuals are called to do in the kingdom. Forgiving is not forgetting. Secondly, does forgiveness allow penance? Nobody actually asks this this way, but, they, but that's kind of what we mean when we ask that. And I've, I've thought that same thought. Well, I'll forgive you but don't you need to make this right? Don't you need to pay a penalty for this? That's not forgiveness. That's called repayment. That's why Jesus in these stories doesn't say, and he could have, think about this. He could have said, well, the master said, you can't pay 10,000 talents. 
I'm going to let you pay it out as you can. Oh, thank you. I can pay you, you know, $500 a month. It may take 20 years, but I will pay you back. That's still a good parable, isn't it? That's still a parable of mercy, but that's not what Jesus says. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not, I will forgive you, but you need to do this first. That's a business deal. That's not forgiveness. I'll tell you where this plays itself out in its most impactful way, and that's in our marriages. Now, I realize I could say the same thing about the way we deal with our children, or children, how you deal with your parents. I understand in families, hurtful things happen. Probably the greatest forgivenesses we're often called upon are, frankly, to the people closest to us. I don't know why it works that way, but it does work that way. And sometimes those are the hardest people to forgive, aren't they? Because they can wound us. So whether it's a child or a parent or brother or sister or someone close to us or in our marriages, it's where I see this a lot. We know we're supposed to forgive, but we want penance. We want the balance sheet to balance, if you will. And I just really want to suggest to you that that's not what Jesus is talking about. As hard as that may sound, is the key to having a great marriage, the key to having that great relationship is to forgive without the expectation of repayment. It's the greatest gift you can give yourself and it's the greatest gift you can give someone else because a debt works both ways. A grudge hurts the grudge holder as much as the other. Now, I'm not telling you you should do it for practical reasons. I'm actually telling you what Jesus is telling all of us is we forgive because he forgave us. But I'm also saying that Jesus is wise in that not only is it right, but it will also make our lives better along with everyone else. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting and forgiveness doesn't allow penance and particularly apply that in our marriages. So let me sum this up just a little bit. I wanna talk about the key idea that unites both of these. You're getting this idea. It's not hard to grasp intellectually, but it's one of those things we have to sit with for a while because it needs to make its way from here to here. Having an awareness of my sin, an intellectual acknowledgement of who I used to be, and through the grace of Jesus Christ, I trust in him and all that debt went away. I might have an intellectual understanding, but let's be fair. We as human beings all have a tendency to rationalize ourselves. Well, I might have been bad, but I'm not as bad as you, or I'm not as bad as him. Well, honey, you should be glad you're married to me because at least I'm a better husband than Joe. We all have a tendency to do that, and that's a thing that happens here. We need to let this soak for a little bit because Jesus wants this knowledge to seep into our hearts so we begin to feel not our sin over again, not our guilt over again, the joy of what we have been forgiven. That's what he wants us to feel, that joy. Then our forgiveness, our mercy, and our love will spring from that. That's the key to living the Christian life. It's not trying harder. It's not just doing the right thing. It's when that knowledge seeps into our heart and we begin to respond out of the joy of what has been done for us. I'll give you a couple of sentences. Without a deep awareness of our sin, there is no deep awareness of forgiveness. That's Simon the Pharisee, isn't it? Doesn't have a very much awareness of his sin. Doesn't think his sin's a big deal. So he has almost no well of forgiveness, does he? 
an awareness of our sin, how offensive it is to God, how much we were in rebellion with God. For some of you, that's easy. You can tell stories, and I've heard your stories, that are just wow. For others of you, your story's not like Simon. I'm not comparing you to Simon, but it's like, you know what? I, I did indeed act better, but that wasn't the point of that parable, was it? Simon was indeed a more righteous man, a, a more well-behaved person than the woman. But Jesus said, that's not the economy, is it? Simon had to come to the realization of his own weight of sin before he could forgive. He who, is, who has been forgiven little loves little. We've all been forgiven a lot. We just don't think we've been forgiven a lot sometimes. Without a deep awareness of sin, there's no deep awareness of forgiveness. And without a deep awareness of forgiveness... There's no real capacity, no lasting capacity to have love and mercy to other people. It can't be based on them or what they do or what they might do or what you think they might be good people. It has to be based on first an awareness of my sin, which gives me an awareness of my forgiveness. And that awareness allows us to love. I realize this is not rocket science. As you walk through these parables, I hope you see, you know what? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And understanding that that's how God says the world works with this relationship and this relationship is the key to loving people. So here's how you put this into practice. Two ways, two practical applications. The first is this. When you encounter people and you know, I need to be loving here, but these are... In the church world, they have a little saying. They call people who are extra grace required people. Now, that's none of you. None of you guys fall in that category. I mean, we have them marked in our database. No, we don't. I made that up. But basically, when you encounter some of those people that are requiring more than you are naturally able to give of forgiveness or love or mercy, begin to think about it in this way. Romans 12:2 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed, made new, by the renewing of your mind. It begins by understanding what Jesus taught. There's a reason Jesus taught this. He's engaging our brains. Now, it needs to seep into our hearts, but it starts here. We need to begin, when you get in those situations, think this through and go, you know what? I believe what Jesus told me, and he told me this. He said, your debt was so great, and it is gone. You are free to forgive that person their debt. That knowledge is going to guide us into how we're going to react to those situations. So knowing this begins to day by day guide how we deal with things. If you just get in that situation and go, I better do this because Jesus wants me to, you will fail. We need to renew our minds, renew our hearts. And over time, you'll see yourself living more kingdom-like. Second application, you know who the hardest person to forgive is for most of us? I know, you just thought of somebody, didn't you? Yeah, and for half of you, that person's sitting next to you. I know how this works. Seriously, do you know who the hardest person is to forgive? It's hard to forgive ourselves, isn't it? We hold on to our own guilt long after Jesus Christ has washed it away. If we are followers of Christ, we burden ourselves with guilt too often. And I want to encourage you, because this applies as much to us as it does to everybody else. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we're lying. That's true. He said, we all have sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
I want you to understand that is a truth statement. That's not an encouraging phrase you put on your coffee cup and drink in the morning, oh, isn't God nice? He's saying, this is true. You need to let what you know in your head seep into your heart. When we will not let go of our guilt over our sin, when we've brought it before God, we have not let the truth of what we know seep into our hearts. I want to reassure you that this forgiveness thing works for us as well. So this week, as you go, we've talked a lot about how to think about this because that's what Jesus is teaching us. He said, I want you to think about this in a kingdom way. I'm going to tell you, Simon, that you think you're a good guy, but actually without an awareness of what you've been forgiven, you can't really love. You're kind of crippled. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he says, and for those of you who are having trouble with mercy and letting go of debts, he said, I want to tell you a story about how God sees this. And so we're supposed to put ourselves into those stories as the ones who have received immense forgiveness, 10,000 talent forgiveness, so that we can be free to go treat people in a different way. And that's our assignment. Let's start walking out this truth, forgiving others, forgiving ourselves, because of the reality of what we believe, what we hold on to, and that is we are forgiven. So put a smile on your face and drive down Hefner Parkway, waving back at people with all five fingers. I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. <laughs>